Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. This is episode 61 of the show, our Roger Maris episode. And we do not have a baseball person today. You can check our archives for lots of baseball shows. But we do have someone with one of the most varied resumes you'll find in the sports analytics space. He's worked for, among others, FanDuel, the Utah Jazz, Austin FC, and MLS. As an on-air TV analyst for the Blazers, and he also founded a golf analytics company. So his name is Corey Jez, and we could easily spend a whole show talking about any one of those jobs. We're going to try to keep it relatively tight, hit the high notes on all those different roles, talk about how he got started in the sports analytics industry, uh, what he's done at each of those stops, building data teams and processes from scratch, working across all these different sports, bringing analytics to television and the challenges that go into that, how to communicate data well, and a whole lot more. Then producer Sergio De La Esperia will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here is the Expected Value Conversation with Corey Jez. Joined now on Expected Value by Corey Jez, former team team executive, analyst, entrepreneur, worked in a whole bunch of different sports. Corey, welcome to the show. It's been a whole pod talking about almost any one of these career stops, but we'll try to keep it relatively concise. Let's just start at the beginning professionally for you. What was your academic early career background even before you got into the sports world? Yeah, Paul, thanks so much for having me. Um, love love jumping on talking about kind of how this uh, how this stuff works. In today's day and age in sports, um, you know, my, my start to it was, uh, not to, you know, it's dissimilar to everybody else's. Cause I always say this, this field, sports analytics, sports technology is, um, it, it's very, there, there's so many unique paths that people can take. It's not like being a lawyer or a doctor, right? You can, there's, there's, there are lawyers who do this stuff. Uh, shout out friends of the program, Seth part now, but, uh, um, you know, there's, I'm sure there's doctors. I'm sure there's someone with an MD who does sports analytics too, but, um, graduated 2011 economics, undergrad, Virginia tech, uh, like ev- literally everybody with an economics degree in the mid Atlantic, I moved to DC and became a consultant. <laughs> um, and I learned things like SQL and Tableau and, you know, it was like, I literally remember when I learned what linear regression was, um, because I was asking someone about deciding how much weight to put on something like carries or yards per carry for my fantasy football team in 2011 or 2009 or whatever year it was. Right. And I was, you know, back then the guy with the Excel model, now the the models have gotten a little more um, mature and and complicated, but uh, you know, kind of, that was my gateway drug to all of this stuff. So I spent about four or five years consulting, kind of building the chops. Like I said, I had an econ degree, so I wasn't particularly technical myself in terms of software development, which I still wouldn't claim to be a software developer, but I can, I can break a few things here and there. Um, and, and yeah, and then kind of jumped into sports, uh, FanDuel and then the NBA, uh, about five or six years into my career after that. So just, but it was a great early on in my career. And the advice I give to people, you know, early on is I, I got really good at some of the tools of the trade. Um, you know, even Python and R were, in 2010, a little more nascent, certainly than they are now, but learning SQL, learning Tableau, and then getting into the more, more advanced stuff, you know, hands-on with those things every day professionally. It's a lot easier when you're doing it at work every day, as opposed to trying to boot camp at night or in your spare time as well. 
Yeah. So your first sports job was as an analytics manager with FanDuel in 2015, which is an eternity ago in kind of sports analytics gambling circles. Where was like where was FanDuel at as a company when you started there, and what did you do there? Yeah. So I was there 15 to 17, I want to say, um, and I it was when it was like every commercial on television was either a FanDuel or a DraftKings commercial, right? Um, and it was me wanting, it was me wanting to transition into my career in sports. You know, previously as a consultant, I was doing analytics on any and everything, business, marketing, et cetera. It was all, you know, kind of boring and wanting to make that transition. The money ball stuff is starting to happen. Right. Um, and so FanDuel was, was a very rapidly growing company and it, a lot of the work I did. So my, my group was mainly the business analytics group, but there was a, there's a large, there's a huge tie-in into what's going on in the sports world. You know, the, back in that those days before they were a sports book, it was answering questions like, well, how big should this tournament, we called them GPP, you know, general prize pool um, of, you know, are we going to get 100,000 people to play NBA tonight? Or are we going to get 500,000 people to play in the big NBA contest tonight or football or basketball? And if the Steph Curry Warriors are playing, you know, the then James Harden Rockets or something like that, a lot more people are going to play basketball that night because it's a, you know, Tuesday, Thursday national game. And that would change our demand modeling for the size of the business that day, because the way we, the way we would maximize our profit margin on a given night, on a given contest was by having exactly the size of the contest that would every, the supply and demand was met perfectly, right? Like everybody who wanted to play played, but we didn't have any unfilled seats and we didn't have anybody else waiting outside. Cause those were, you know, a million people would play in a big, Sunday NFL contest or something like that. So um, I, re I remember debates of like, do we list James Harden as a point guard or a shooting guard? You know, things like that. When Chris Paul goes to the Rockets or uh, situations like that. So, um, you know, how do you set the salaries for the players and how do you do so in a way to, you know, be representative of the sport, obviously, but also to try to balance the, the skill versus, you know, the skill curve. There's a, you know, very Pareto, uh, kind of dynamic going on with the players in daily fantasy sports of you have 5% of the players win 85% of the money or there's a lot of sharps and, and then a lot of fish and, uh, and you're trying to balance the, the, the sharks don't eat all the fish basically. So you see, so have your player population. So it was problems like that. Um, you know, building an analytics group, building a centralized analytics capability from the ground up, which I think was you know, one of the things I think then going into a front office setting, having kind of a, and we were a growing company, lots of, you know, we weren't perfect by any means, but having kind of a proper corporate analytics and, and from consulting days as well, background to then going into pro sports, especially when you're in charge of the technology kind of component of whether it's basketball or football or soccer operations, um, I think was a huge benefit because you were really comfortable with how to run meetings, how to set agendas, how to, you know, how to do sprint reviews, how to, you know, prioritize and have a, you know, back then it was Jira. Now it's uh, tools that I like a little more, but you know, how to do project scoping, right. And all these things that are kind of the meta about how you work. And I think there's some organizations who've gotten a lot better in pro sports. And there's probably still a lot of organizations who kind of stink at that in pro sports as well. Yeah. That kind of leads to a, a quote. I think it was on your website. I saw, you said that quote, being more data driven as a club, ironically has much less to do with models and more to do with full stack technology. I think I understand what you're saying, but could you just expand on that kind of how it applies to, you know, some of those teams that you've dealt with? Yeah. You know, I think having the model and I'm kind of using that term 
almost ironically here, but whatever the data point is, right? And that could actually be a model. It could be your draft model, NFL draft coming up, right? How do you value Bajan Robinson, for example, or how do you value Victor Wembanyama um, or whatever? It could be a an advanced metric, whatever it is. If you can't get it integrated into your decision-making protocol as an organization, like you've done 80% of the work of the tech, tech work, right? To do the data engineering and the machine learning and the data viz and the da da da. But if it lives in like a PDF or an Excel doc or an email, uh, it's never going to see the light of day, right? Especially with modern decision makers and, you know, thinking about all the things, choose whatever sport, but thinking about all the things that a decision maker has to know with the draft or free agency or trade deadline, um, or in a coaching context of, you know, preparing for an opponent or a playoff series. And if you don't have an integrated way to get that information into your decision-making process, then you're, you're up the Creek without a paddle, you know? And so when I say it's more about full stack technology, I mean the full stack technology as the tools to get that into your integrated decision-making process to say, Hey, scouts who are going to be traveling over the, all over the country, looking at basketball prospects here is the player page of every college basketball player. And here's their shot chart. And here's their catch and shoot off the dribble numbers. And here's what our models think about them. And here's their school strength of schedule and the adjustment because they're in a bad conference or a good conference and blah, 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 blah. And their wingspan and data, you know, there's hundreds of data points, right? And if somebody, if you kind of let everybody do it their own way, they're all going to go get their own data points from their other sources. And, oh, well, this guy's a good three-point shooter, but this guy's not. And all, all these things, you need to bring that in and really narrow that down to say, here are the things we care about. Here's what's important. We all need to be on the same page. We're all going to use numbers. Every every scout, you can be the least analytics friendly. Charles Barkley uses numbers, right? And so we just want you know the people in our organization or whatever context you're in to be using the right ones. You have people, the people in charge of your analytics, you know, department capability, it's their job to know what the right numbers are and to surface those to the group and to get them into those decision makers' hands. And so, yes, you need data scientists. Yes, you need people to build the predictive models. You also, you know, if I was to start an analytics group from scratch, you know, make believe team and I had an unlimited budget, data scientists like the third or fourth person I'm hiring probably. It's data engineer first and it's a a web developer pretty close behind and maybe a couple of each. because you know you have to get that infrastructure in place, and then that predictive modeling or advanced metric component is part of the infrastructure. So from FanDuel, you went to the Jazz, where you were the director of basketball analytics. What did that mean, especially at the time when it was you know again it was only five six years ago, but it was kind of a long time in analytics time. Yeah. So what did you do with the Jazz there? Yeah. So they had had one person there. Um, Previously, uh, Taylor Snar, who's still very, um, has a great website, Dunks and Threes. Um, he was with the Jazz previous to that. And, um, you know, was really coming in and trying to uh, grow and kind of modernize the, de- the department and modernize the group. Um, you know, the group now, depending on how you count, is probably four or five or six people. Um, you know, it was one in 2016, 17. So, um, to your point, you know, and at most basketball teams, most NBA teams are probably in the, you know, half dozen to dozen head count now in this space. And so it was a little bit of, it was a lot of bit of everything, not a little bit of everything. It was a lot of bit of everything, but rebuilt our tech infrastructure, 
<laughs> more than once uh, in three or four years and, um, you know, made some good decisions, made some bad decisions and, and you know, iterated and um, brought all of our technology in-house under basketball operations. So took it out of the locus of control of the IT group and other centralized groups, you, you know, for people who've worked in kind of traditional uh, software development roles, things work in sprints and, and you know, proper prioritization protocols and things. And that just doesn't work in a really small kind of nimble group. And it's really important, I think, to have all of that stuff inside of your, in this case, basketball, but your sporting operations department. And so I think it's why those groups are getting bigger because there's no longer just data analysts. It's the data engineer and the web dev and the director of the group, you know, and the data scientist and the coaching analyst and maybe a DevOps person or a, you know, a, a utility player and, you know, two or three people maybe in each of those roles. And so really getting all of that in-house, um, getting our hands around all the technology and then iterating on all the stuff we did from an analysis perspective to give more stuff to Quinn Snyder, give more stuff to Dennis Lindsay and Justin Zanuck. And, and now it's Steven Schwartz and Bart Taylor is kind of the AGMs there. And, and, you know, really try to bring that into the, to the 21st century. And, you know, if you look at around the bubble, um, the jazz went from being, they, they were the number one three point shooting team in terms of percentage after the Conley Bogdanovich acquisitions, um, which was a, it's not hard to kind of look at the roster and see you go from Jay Crowder and Ricky Rubio and Derek favors as the complimentary players around Mitchell and Gobert. And then you, you switch that to Bogdanovich and Conley and, you know, obviously a bias towards perimeter shooting and surrounding your, your great players with perimeter and uh, Royce O'Neal being a great two way three and D guy as well. And so, you know, just leaning into that in the bubble and taking a ton of threes, um, what one stat that I love that um, if you if you take Quinn Snyder's last two seasons and you aggregate them together, so those two years of the NBA, um, nineteen twenty and twenty twenty one, um, and aggregate them together, the Utah Jazz were the number one offensive rating and the number one defensive rating over that time, which is you know pretty 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 ridiculous. I think more than anything else, that just speaks to Quinn Snyder's genius, basically, because to do that with essentially the same roster is is pretty impressive. Obviously Rudy Gobert helps on the defensive side of the ball. So, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a little bit of everything under the sun from a, a sports analytics capability. And it's what really informed, you know, you talked about that quote earlier. It's what really informed that, that, you know, if I could go back and do that over again, be a lot more focus on the technology stack, you know, as much as it was on the analysis and the models. And from an MBA specifically standpoint, like what kind of data i mean we know the traditional stats and even your shot charts and stuff what else what what all, is all the data that you're trying to kind of unify more from a game perspective obviously there's there's college and there's a lot more but from the season perspective what kind of data are you all trying to pull together yeah you know i think that uh in-game stuff i think data the data people in the nba you know internally or externally are still really figuring out how do i leverage in-game real-time tracking data and use that to make decisions at halftime or at quarters and at timeouts. Um, I'm not sure that there's a great answer, like a, a very obvious answer. There's a lot of ways you could do it, and I'm sure teams are trying it. Um, you know, that was the early on conversations that are like, what are the hardware and networking requirements? Like, do I need to put rack servers in the catwalk of my building to not send this out to AWS to process it on site? Things like that which are, you know, what that latency goes from now two minutes to two seconds or, or whatever it might be and makes that possible. Right. And so I think stuff like that's super interesting. And, you know, 
we were always focused on. I, I think another thing that, you know, we started doing in my time there, I think most teams have, have put shot tracking in their practice gyms now, whether usually with Noah, um, uh, Noah's a great company. They, they do this at the, you know, lower levels of the game too. They have shooting gyms all over the country. It's really, really great product. How do you really leverage stuff like that? You know, I, I still think very few teams compare basketball to baseball right now. And the amount of technology and attention given to player development in baseball. Now, obviously the player development, you know, trajectory, the, the, the ability to track that in baseball is so much more tactile than it is in basketball. But uh, I think that is, you know, if you want to say basketball is sitting in Moneyball 2.0 right now, that's one of the parts of 3.0 or 4.0 for basketball. Every team's going to have a player development analyst, you know, a coach, a, a, you know, a movement person to help understand, help these guys. Like, how can I teach Tony Bradley, who was at one point when I was there, 27th pick in the first round, young player out of North Carolina, defensive, or was an offensive minded center, had to learn how to play pick and roll in the defense in the NBA. And just using that as an example, to teach someone how to play pick and roll, you need at least four and more likely six bodies. It's very different than hitting or pitching in baseball where you need zero bodies beyond the player. You need, if you have one player, you need five or, you know, three to five other people and, you know, assistant coaches and, and video room guys and people like myself are great, but they're not getting, giving these guys game speed. And I'm not going to go get Donovan Mitchell to teach Tony Bradley how to play pick and roll. That's not the best use of Donovan Mitchell's time. Uh, from a fitness standpoint. And so how do you do that? Right. And there, again, you know, people talk about VR, AR, they talk about, um, you know, on court kind of constraint, the constraints led approach to skill development. Rob Gray's got a ton of really great stuff on this for, for people who want to go deep on that and skill acquisition and what's your neuroplasticity and your ability to take on a new skill in a given day, because maybe you're mentally fatigued because you played four games in five days and all this type of stuff. You don't get a lot of practice in the middle of the season, right? It's a lot there. Technology can be a centralized part of that. It's not just analytics anymore. It's technology, right? And uh, information that comes out of that technology. And how do you centralize that into creating a protocol or a process? When also, by the way, it's really hard to know with certainty if it's working. Uh, You know, it is not chess where you can say, oh, well, when we move this way, it increases the win probability by 2% or, or whatever, or even baseball. And so with this very chaotic, stochastic world of basketball or most sports um, to know if it's working. And so uh, those are all the things that are super interesting to me. I think, you know, basketball being this, you know, essentially the second most advanced American sport from a technology standpoint or, you know, world sport. But um, that those questions are still largely unanswered and people are, people are doing really good work in the silos of all these things, but like the player development coaches at teams are generally great. Um, but they don't know how to write SQL or how to combine their player development data with the in-game data, with the fitness, wellness, health teams data with the draft data on now, how do we think that 27th pick 19 year old rookie is going to develop over eight years, right? All that making all that kind of coalesce into one place is still one big question. I think baseball is probably still, um, hand wringing, hand wringing over a lot of that. So all that stuff is, is super interesting to me. And I think it's gonna be a lot of space, you know, in pro sports over the next decade to think about problems like that. While you were with the jazz, you got a master's in analytics from Georgia tech for, you know, students or people looking for career switches or advancements who are listening. What, 
was what was the upside of that? What did that do for you? I I highly do not recommend getting your masters, you know, on a team charter from New Orleans to Utah, like that takes off at 1130 at night and lands at 3 a.m. or something yeah. like that, right? Duly noted. Yeah, um, the the Georgia Tech program was great. I can't speak highly enough of the program. They built that program to be asynchronous and online. And I think it started in like 2019. So their timing could not have been better with uh, the adoption of asynchronous learning in 2020. Um, but I, I, had, I had started that process of what my master's degree was going to look like before I got to the MBA of doing the GREs and the GMATs and the, you know, applying and see where you get in first time around and try to go get scholarships and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I'd started that before the MBA. Um, certainly in the back of my mind of, you know, leveling up my credentials to, to be able to make that jump. It just so happened that I got the job in the MBA before I was done with the program. Um, I, I think for me, it was a formalization around especially the statistical and like the machine learning side of things. Um, like I said, my undergrad was in economics. I've, you know, taken all the boot camps and sure I knew how to import scikit-learn and run a linear regression model. But I think, I think what the master's degree did for me was it taught me when is it a linear regression model versus a random forest versus XGBoost versus a neural net and XGBoost doing grid search versus randomized search versus what's cross-validation and blah, blah, like to act. Because then to go and to, to parlay that into the job, you're sitting in the room saying my draft model says this guy's eight and all the scouts think he's 40. You damn well better have a reason why. And if you go pure black box model, uh, it, you're not really going to have a reason why beyond, you know, your intuition. And, you know, one of the things that I did that I think had a lot of the um, really increased the adoption of some of those protocols we did is, is we would, you know, use feature importances and use coefficients and, and scaled parameters and things like that to literally say what our model liked and disliked about him. Because if the model likes his age in his school, that's different than the model liking his shooting and his rebounding. And it's important to know those things, you know, because at the end of the day, it's certainly an imperfect science, things like drafting or scouting. So from the jazz, you transitioned to work for Austin FC as their director of sports science and analytics, where, you know, before they started in MLS, so a brand new team, what was that process of, you know, you've talked about building teams and importance of everything. What was that process? Different sort of league, different kind of data, new club completely. What was the process like for you with Austin? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty wild, uh, three months. I did three drafts in three months. Um, so <laughs> uh, I did, yeah, I did all the different so drafts. the NBA draft, the NBA draft was in like October, November, that of the 2020 COVID year. And then, uh, a few weeks I think December 1st or 5th or something was the MLS expansion draft was first. And then the MLS college super draft was in January. Um, and so in, in the course of about three months did three drafts. So I literally, you know, I finished this, my time at Utah jazz, uh, was recruited to the MLS, I think to, to their credit, um, some folks there, they, they had second spectrum at the time as well in, in major league soccer. And for me, it would fit like a glove to come in and jump into data pipelines and data feeds that I was really familiar with, with second spectrum. Um, so much so that literally the day I started, I basically wrote a bunch of crappy non-sustainable code to spin up a web app to have, you know, a dashboard and a model available for our expansion draft, knowing that that was in like six weeks or eight weeks. Um, there was, there was no kind of like formal, like let's get, you know, 
do a kind of a traditional yearly planning and plan out how the you know it was like let's go build this thing right away and then figure out the uh the rest later um so it was, that was a really cool experience i mean american soccer soccer is probably the most maybe maybe the most academically interesting to me um uh, from an anal- analysis analytics perspective because you can argue what league the mls is in the world call it the eighth to twelfth best league in the world probably um probably more towards 12th if we're being honest and uh that means the player pool is anywhere from five to ten thousand eligible players and you've seen the playbook now a number of times over with uh with toulouse with brighton hove albion with brentford um all these clubs that have been kind of managed or um run with with a a a data-driven tilt to them and so um Soccer was something that super interesting to me because I think because of the worldwide scale of it, uh, because of the nature of the sport uh, and the nature of certainly the scouting and recruitment aspect of the sport, that is absolutely, you know, a huge place for this. And like I said, the model's already been pretty much proven. Like if you're, if you're questioning that this doesn't have a place in soccer, like you're not paying attention. Right. Bob Vulgaris and Almost every league. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Vulgaris and Castellone to lose winning the goal differential in league two France after cutting their budget by three quarters the year prior, um, you know, Brentford now like sniffing, you know, trying to backdoor their way into Europe this year um, in the premiership, like one point behind Liverpool right now. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's really cool. and Interesting. Probably not the thing for me to do spend like my day to day doing. And I was there, I was at Austin FC for about 18 months and um, uh, but incredibly, um, interesting. And, and I think the one thing soccer does do probably better than certainly basketball, um, and and probably most sports is kind of the integration of the physical performance data with the, because it's just such an integral part of the sport, how fast you can run is like the number one or two attribute about most players that you care about in a scouting or a game prep context. And so, um, you know, the, that integration with your high performance staff from a data and technology perspective, basketball writ large does not have that baseball. I don't think writ large has that the NFL. I don't even have a clue. You know, it's a much more physical sport, but, um, that, that is something that, you know, the, the sports scientists certainly in that space. Now, most of those sports scientists in soccer, even world soccer, don't have the technology resources. They're all writing R locally on their computer and they're, they're usually pretty good at that, but now go in, integrate it with your stats bomb scouting data and, you know, make those same, same prognostications about 10,000 players all over the world to support your scouting group. And that's a whole different, you know, it goes back to the full stack technology side of things. Yes. So what's a, a quick kind of summary of how a soccer team can use that uh, whatever the heart monitor, the physical data, whether it's training or a game, uh, how do you generally see a team use that information? Yeah. I mean, you know, your, your training protocols are kind of the acute version of that, right? So what is someone's HRV overnight? What is someone heart rate variability overnight? So whether that's aura or whoop and, and integrating all that, um, getting all of your readiness data. So how a player actually feels from a rate of perceived exertion, combining that with what's their acute to chronic workload ratio been over the last two weeks. Um, combining that with what are today's plans, combining that we live in Austin, Texas, what's the weather outside, you know, and right. And so acutely just taking all of those things 
and using it to, by the way, your high performance coach has like 15 minutes in the morning to decide I'm going to hold the guy out. Right. Or I, like, he's not going to sit down while you write a SQL query and build an R shiny app to, to answer that question. Right. Like that's walks in, that's in the TV in the coach's room of the full team, all those metrics we just talked about. And maybe some players pop in red, some players pop in green, depending on what day of the week, match day, minus two, minus three, minus one, whatever. Um, that's just in the training context. That's now, now overlay who's playing for the opponent, who are we playing in three days? Uh, what are all of those metrics like for those players? We don't have their internal data, but you have their match data. So you know who played 98 minutes in the last match and who ran 15 kilometers in the last match and who the fastest players are and, and what they're, you can you know impute some cute chronic workload ratios that way and say, well, do these guys get attacked on the left or the right side more often? Where are they weakest? Is that related to those players' speed? Because you have tracking data in Major League Soccer now through Second Spectrum, you have all that speed and fitness data, which you don't have with event level, just ball tracking essentially. And so you can now know in a scouting report who the fastest players are on every opponent, what position they play, what happens when the ball's in their area, do do they typically get exposed up that right or left flank, et cetera, et cetera. And same thing in a scouting context, similar type stuff in a scouting context. So now in this past season, you were an on-air analytics insider with the Portland Trailblazers. I think the only person in that specific kind of role in the NBA. For those who didn't see Blazers broadcasts or missed you on them at least this year, what did you do in that role? Yeah, it was, it was really exciting to kind of get back into the NBA and um, and do something new. Um, the Blazers, you know, through kind of our little network of, of folks in this space reached out to me last summer and, you know, they had internally surveyed the landscape of certainly RSN is, is all over the place right now. Um, more so in baseball, but basketball as well. And, uh, and, you know, they had, they had kind of a mandate from ownership from Jody Allen and, uh, Bert, who's kind of the Vulcan ownership group, Seahawks and, and Blazers and some others. And, um, and said, they wanted them to go be innovative, to go do new things, and they really empowered them to do that. And um, one of the unique things about Portland is they're one of only five teams in the NBA that produces and owns their broadcast. So they, everybody, the producers, the people in the trucks, the graphics people, the on-air talent, uh, they're all Trailblazers employees. They're not Root Sports or Bally Sports or Comcast or whoever yeah, employees. Yeah, big difference there. Yeah, yeah, and so they have literally all the editorial license in the world with how they communicate their games to the fans. They just license it and run it on those networks or streaming services. And so one of the projects they came up with out of that mandate was to have an analytics onsider in the same vein for folks who haven't seen it, essentially the same vein as the, uh, the rules expert who comes in, uh, Jaffe or, or whoever it is in the NFL or the NBA, uh, Steve Jaffe or, or I can't remember all their names off right, the top of my head. Gene Sidera, yeah, Taylor, Gene Sidera, Sidera, right, NFL, exactly. And, um, and basically come in, um, about once a quarter, I also did radio and pregame, halftime, postgame shows in the studio. Uh, it was, game nights were busy nights because I'd, I'd end up having about 10 or 12 hits a night. And it's, it's nothing compared to what the play-by-play guys do. But um, and, and just add that aspect to the broadcast. Because again, similar to a scout, every broadcast is going to use numbers. Uh, let's just, why, why don't we use the ones that our coaches and general manager use? I mean, that, that's literally the the pitch I would give, you know, there were certainly some people, social media, whatever that, or, you know, this is not my cup of tea. And I don't think it's going to be 
everybody's cup of tea from a consumer standpoint, but the, if I had to sell it, that would be my sell. And, and that is, look, Coach Billups looks at the four factors at halftime and postgame. So we're going to look at the four factors at halftime and postgame. And we're going to talk about, you know, why they started double teaming De'Aaron Fox in the pick and roll in the second quarter because the Fox Sabonis pick and roll was killing them in the first. And we can actually say in the first quarter, they ran that pick and roll 13 times and got 18 points. And that's a lot. That's 1.5 or, you know, whatever it is. And so um, just adding that kind of layer to to the broadcast was a lot of fun. Um, frankly, a little less stressful than uh, a different, I say a different stressful of like, is my, my Wi-Fi going to go out? Or, you know, am I looking at the camera in the stadium and which camera am I supposed to look at and those things? Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really cool experience to just bring that stuff that is so second nature to not just myself, but everybody who kind of does this job in the NBA and just kind of bring it to a broader audience and, and do it over 82 games where we really had an opportunity to not only indoctrinate, but have a conversation around those things and say, Hey, like, yes, the Blazers ended up 12th, uh, in the West. Damian Lillard, which by the way, and I'll have this conversation with anybody, it's a little one way on a podcast, but Damian Lillard is first team all NBA guard. Like there, there's no question about it. Like Damian Lillard had the most efficient, highest usage season of anybody outside of Steph 2016, I think, um, as a guard. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. And and to help put that into context beyond just points per game and and, and some of the other kind of traditional stuff was really cool. What did you learn about communicating data? Well, obviously the biggest difference is, you know, you're trying to talk in whatever, 10, 15, 30 second sound bites. What, what, else, what did you learn about bringing those things across quickly and efficiently on TV? Yeah, I, I think there was, there was two things, maybe, maybe three things that I learned throughout that. And, and the first was kind of, you know, it would be similar if you were building a brand new sports team out of thin air, building an analytics department out of thin air today, which would be, you'd have to educate your stakeholders as like, why do we look at things per hundred possessions instead of per game? You know, why do we look at effective field goal percentage and instead of field goal percentage? Like why are tri triple doubles basically meaningless if we're trying to predict the future uh, and, and all these types of things, you know, and defensive three point percentage being another good one that just doesn't really, it's hard to put much to it. It's a number that's there, but it's hard to put much to it. And a lot of those are actually basketball conversations. They're not analytics conversations. Like, Okay, are you going to score more points playing against uh, the Bucks or the? I'm trying to think of who a really slow team was this year, but or the Blazers. And the Blazers don't run in transition very much, and the answer is always the Bucks. And if you ask a basketball person why, it's because all oh, they run in transition, they fly up and down the floor like the Warriors and the Kings do. And and okay, well that makes sense. Well, shouldn't I measure that differently than when I play a really slow team and they're not going to run up and down the floor as much? Like, wouldn't that make basketball sense to? not to like account for that. I think every basketball person would say, yeah, that makes sense. Is that, okay, well, uh, let's do per hundred possessions instead of per game. Like, okay, well, why, you know, hey, in a, when you measure field goal percentage, like if you make a three, isn't it worth 50% more? It's amazing how many people, when you say this to, that a three-pointer is worth 50% more than a two-pointer. And people go, oh yeah, huh, you're right. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. It's like, no, it's it's worth too much, frankly. You know, that's why the league has gone the way it is. Um, and, but, but so many people have not just thought about it through that slightly different lens and say, you know, if we were going to measure Damian Lillard against Damanis Sabonis in terms of their efficiency, uh, 
and Demonis Sabonis takes a bunch of like 13 footers and he's pretty good at him, really good at him or Joel Embiid or whoever it is. And like, shouldn't we account for those things that one of the guys get, yeah, that's effective field goal percentage. Like you don't have to start with the fact that it's effective field goal percentage and you must use this metric and it's holier than now, but a lot of the basketball. So the basketball conversation through the education process, I think is really important. And, and continuing to I, I think the other thing I learned is continuing to hit on those things throughout throughout the season and it sometimes probably felt repetitive to me and maybe even felt repetitive to the person who was locked in watching the Blazers every single night but that's not the majority of people you know uh the majority of people are maybe watching even Blazers fans are probably watching 60 games out of the year or you know watching half the game because they're you know they're they're it's how we all consume sports in our own different way right and so and so being able to kind of hit home with the themes and hit home with the underlying, really the underlying basketball was what was so important. I think maybe even more important than like the front office context, because in the front office context, you really go into the weeds about why the model does this or, you know, why does the shot probability model like that shot versus this one, you know, here it's much more about the basketball context and tying it back to, in our case, what Lamar Hurd and Kevin Calabro, our play-by-play and analyst, are talking about on air and actually having that basketball conversation back and forth of, hey, Lamar, great point. You were just talking about the transition defense. Actually, yeah, I'm seeing that in the numbers. It's blah, 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 blah. And boy, that would be like the fifth most of any game this season. And that's just just contextualizing what we are seeing and helping people understand you know, the scale or the context of, of it through numbers. Let's talk about one of the things you're focused on now. Tour IQ is a bills itself is the first advanced analytics platform built for PGA Tour professionals. This is obviously a, a golf site and tool. What does Tour IQ do? How does that help a golfer be better? Yeah, it's funny. We've we've talked about um, you know, I've, I've been, it's probably the most sports you guys have talked about on a, in like a 45 minute uh, podcast or something before. We're, get, we're getting through all. Yeah, of them. we're getting we'll get through all of them. Um, you know, if 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 there was jobs in golf analytics 10 years ago, when I started getting into this, I'd have been in that, in that line, not the basketball one, frankly. Um, you know, I'm competitive golfer, been playing kind of at the state and national levels as an amateur my whole life. Still, still try to from, from time to time. Um, but about two years ago, got connected with a guy who plays on the PGA tour named Dylan Fratelli, kind of friend of a friend, um, lives here in Austin, uh, played at UT, uh, before he's on, been on the tour like six, seven years now. But, um, I wrote my master's thesis on reverse engineering tee shot strategies based on golf tracking data and um, club capture data and things like that. And trying to basically understand how golfer was trying to strategize and break down a hole. So I started working with um, this guy kind of on a, you know, part-time helping a friend out basis. And we, over time, coalesced a lot of ideas and learnings and things and, coming back to, you know, what I was talking about earlier of the way we do things internally at an NBA team or an MLS or an MLB team of the infrastructure and the technology and all the, the codification around the analysis, because you really want to empower your stakeholder to make the best decision in, in any setting. And, you know, I looked at the golf space and said, nobody's doing this in the golf space. The, the, the economic pyramid of golf as an individual sport is basically the inverse of that of of a pro team you know if you're playing for the brooklyn nets right now as a player you want for essentially nothing from a game support perspective you have the best physios you have the best analytics people you have the best coaches 
you have the scouts who you players barely ever meet sometimes who are out scouting the next three opponents. So you can be ready to know what their play calls are goes down the list, right? I mean, there's this kind of internal uh, arms race going on and you have the best chef, you have the best, you know, the best team charter, the best, the, the putting the recovery, you know, pressure wrap on your legs while you're on the team charter and taking Norma tech home with you every night, right? Like all those things that does not exist in golf at all in, in any of those levels. And those guys are essentially independent contractors. Certainly a number of them have teams of people around them, but it's up to them to put those teams in place. And, and so hiring software developers and machine learning data scientists is expensive and hard. And um, I think golf is in this place where it's, it's the perfect sport to look at from a data driven perspective, because it's a little less stochastic than most, frankly, um, there's still variability in a million different ways, wind and weather and, and how the course plays in the morning versus the afternoon and, and your equipment and all these things. But, uh, shot link data is awesome. Uh, we basically have, uh, the location of every ball down to, um, three one hundredths of an inch. And so, yeah, I'm going back, you know, over a decade now. Um, and so, my learnings from a lot of the stuff we've talked about, Paul, and the pro sports side, and how do I do that analysis for my stakeholder and just applying it to golf and trying to give these guys a resource to essentially say, how do I break down any hole in the PGA Tour? Like, there's a bunker out there, 295 off the tee, and if I hit driver, I'm probably going to go into the bunker or I'll have a 50-50 because it takes up half the fairway. Do I hit driver and take on the bunker or do I hit three wood and lay short of it? Or do I play to the right rough with my driver? And so on any tee shot, and this is just one part of what we do, but it's kind of the most acute and, and easy to understand of, of any tee shot on the PGA Tour, there might be three, four, five, six different options. I was out at the Zurich Classic last week, um, 16th hole there in New Orleans. 16th hole is this like 350, 360, quasi drivable par three if you're a long hitter but there's water left and then the fairway tightens up the right and so what is the trade-off of hitting four iron nine iron into this green that's got water around it versus hitting driver taking on the water but also taking on the green and what would probably be a pretty easy chip if you're right of the green somewhere but there's also some trees over there and how do you quantify that now what's your framework for breaking that down and with the shot link data and with some you know, pretty complex math and, and, you know, I've got a software developer who works with me who's, who's really great as well. And some pretty complex software on top of it, we can surface that those insights and those decision-making tools to professional golfers in a way that, you know, as far as I can tell has not been done before. So it's, it is, I, I said this in a, an a article that was written a couple of months ago is just, I basically have just tried to do what I did for an NBA team for a professional golfer and make the, make the economics and make the software scale in such a way that it makes sense, that it adds a ton of value to them. Um, and, and software obviously helps scale that really easily. Yeah. As you talk to all these different sports, it does strike me as doing similar work, both from a technical standpoint and from a, as you said, kind of speak basketball or speak golf, because, you know, if you're a, on the tee, you're kind of running those same calculations in your head, you know, the risk of being right versus left, whatever, and how, but now you have a way to quantify that same thing with shooting from different locations. Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, it seems like being able to speak sports with numbers is kind of the theme that's running through all these different jobs of yours. And, and golf, ironically, you know, it's, again, it was not a, 
there are no message. There's no job board for, you know, data scientists for a golf team because golf teams don't exist. Um, and so it's a little bit of me creating, you know, what I think was always, you know, is now in hindsight, the, the very obvious end game for me with doing this in the sport that I play competitively and that I'm an expert or the most expert and have the most domain knowledge in. not that I'm a PGA tour player, but you know, I, I have played competitively and still do. And it's the sport that I am best equipped to talk about, you know, what you're just saying, Paul, of that, you know, what is that strategy recommendation calculation? What do the numbers say? You know, I cannot talk about playing pick and roll against, you know, Gobert and drop coverage. Um, even though I've stood next to Rudy Gobert on a basketball court before, but I can talk about hitting driver versus three wood when there's water and play up the left and you have a two shot lead and like, under like understanding at least contextually what that situation is like playing at the collegiate level playing at the uh, national level from an amateur perspective and so it, it was it's a really obvious thing for me it took you know it took a we, we've talked about my career it took me a little while to get here but um really excited about what we've built what we're continuing to build and you know it's it's really cool to be out there walking you know walking a practice round with players and saying standing on a tee box and saying okay there's there's this and there's that and even if it's a tenth of a shot, a quarter of a shot, um, those those margins, these guys are so, so good. And you gain so much appreciation for it being out there. They add up over the course of a round, over a four, four rounds over a tournament. And, you know, on average, 25 tournaments over a season for most guys. You know, it has the the ability to make these these really small marginal impacts and really compound them over the course of a year, which is really exciting. You've talked about being transactional versus transformational in the analytics process, and I liked how you explained this. What do you what do you mean by the difference in those two things? Yeah, I I think you know extending the golf kind of conversation here, I could I could send you a text or a PDF or an email or say, hey, on number six, it's driver, it's not three wood, or it's three wood, it's not driver, or it's left, it's not right. Numbers say this. Don't question it. Go do it. Thanks. Thanks for your time. That's that's pretty transactional, right? And by the way, we could be right, but we're we're probably not going to kind of instill the 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 thought process and the strategy and the breakdown that we want to, right? And and a lot of this is how what is our framework for decision? And you can take any of these things we've been talking about, Paul. But what is our framework for decision making here? Like, how do we decide which way to send Luka Doncic in the pick and roll when we defend it? Do we shade him left or shade him right? What is our framework from, how do we decide who to draft? How do we decide which pitcher should pitch tonight, right? Or, you know, and or what do we hit off the tee uh, on 16 on Sunday at a PGA Tour event? And so um, getting to the point where you can discuss that framework and say, hey, here's all the information that we have at our disposal to inform that framework, right? And a lot of the conversations I like to have is kind of at the whiteboard level and say to your stakeholder, and again, this could be for any sport, but to extend it to golf, say, Hey, you're about to show up for a tournament, the course you've never seen before. What are all the things you'd like to know? Like, I'd like to know what kind of grass there is. I'd like to know how fast the greens run. You know, does the ball tend to stick in the green or does it tend to, you know, spin backwards or are they really firm and they go forward? Uh, how windy does it tend to be? Uh, where are the pins normally on these holes? You know, when the pins here on this hole, is it easy or hard from this location or that location? And all this stuff is pretty knowable, right? And so if you ask your, if you kind of ask your stakeholder that information gathering process without injecting, oh, the number, the percentage, the machine learning model says this or that, 
then you've got a really nice decision making framework in play already. You know, and and for a lot of the golfers I work with, we have these kind of thresholds and say, hey, if it's over a tenth of a shot, we will really start paying attention to it. If it's over a quarter of a shot, we're getting to the point where it's going to be a pretty strong recommendation. Uh, and and you you put that framework in place and it takes time, it takes relationship building in any of these contexts and the trust that yes, we have information, but we're also considering how you want to play and execute with, because the answer to guard Luka Doncic might be you should blitz him every time. But if you've got a defensive big who never operates outside the three point line then blitzing Luka Doncic is not really in your, on your menu. Yeah. It's not really on your menu of options, right? Like if you've got a guy who, who, hits his driver 350 versus guy who hits his driver 290, your menu of options is a little different, right? And so you have to kind of overlay and understand how your stakeholder works, whether that's a coach, whether that's a, an athlete, and use the information to inform what's the best recommendation for them. Because even with golf, which is this relatively, you know, less chaotic situation, it's just a ball sitting, standing still on a tee, uh, and you have to hit it, there are all those contextual things that you have to overlay. Um, and, and not all of them can be perfectly done. You know, you're, you're taking proxies and you're making assumptions and doing all the things that we do in statistics and using it to try to get to the best decision and having the best process towards that decision at the end of the day. And so being very process oriented and saying, Hey, even if you do hit the ball in the water on 16, would you do the same thing again? Do you like the process you went, you know, if yeah, Luca went for 40, but he made a lot of really tough shots. Like, would we change our process there? Um, and that's the question you want to be able to ask yourself at the end of the day. So that's the transformational kind of, you know, process-oriented decision-making framework that we want to put into play, I think, in, in a lot of these situations. Yeah, it's almost like a, an advanced way of the old teach someone how to fish. Don't just give them a fish sort of thing and doing that at a, a higher level. Um, all right, let's wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we go through a number of, of your favorite things just to get to know you a little better. What is your favorite number and why? Eight, Cal Ripken. Growing up, always number eight. Uh, not a good golf number, but yeah. <laughs> no, no. I am, so that may answer the second question, your favorite athlete when you were a kid. You know, ironically, I, I, eight is my number from Cal Ripken, but my favorite baseball player growing up, and this goes back to being very, very young, four or five years old. And, uh, was Joey Cora, second baseman of the Seattle Mariners back in the day. And for the most, you know, very advanced logic here, that Cora sounded a little like Corey. Um, so his last name said- so You guys are clearly very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, uh, big Mariners fan, even, you know, 2001 Seattle Mariners, still the greatest single season of any team in any sport <laughs> ever, I maintain. Yep. Uh, but yeah, Mariners, Mariners fan from, like a lot of kids in my generation, uh, but not because of Griffey. I loved Griffey, right. but not because of that. Because of Joey Cora. Yeah. Uh, favorite golf course that you've gotten to play? Um, I'll go. Uh, I've been very privileged to play a lot of very cool golf courses. Um, I'll go a little off the beaten path, though. And if you're, this is probably for like all two people who love golf course architecture. Let's go. The Let's way do I do. Uh, Mike Mike Strance is the greatest golf course architect of all time. Uh, passed away five or six years ago. Tobacco Road in central North Carolina is the coolest golf course I've ever played. It is, it is, I think if I, it, it is so interesting. It is so funky. It is weird. There are a lot of beautifully manicured. It's still in good shape, but there are a lot of beautiful, you know, every place they play a U.S. Open is, is cool and interesting. And I think the USGA has done a much better job of the country club last year, LA country club this year, you know, way different than the Shinnecocks and Aaron Hills of the world. Um, and so those are better. 
they're more of this vein, but tobacco road, Mike Strance, look it up. There's a lot of good articles and pictures of it out there. Uh, it, it is a hoot to play. I like it. I like it. I like the different answers. Uh, favorite nerdy thing that you track this personally, just kind of nerdy thing that you keep track of sticking with the theme, I guess. Um, so I have a, a launch monitor device that when I, when every time I go practice, I, I am probably overdue this like analysis paralysis for sure. So every swing I take in, in practice, like I will go to the range this evening, probably and hit balls and I will track the path of the ball. Um, you know, if you think about it in degrees by which it, when it passes, where it contacts the ball, is it going into out or out to in? I will, you know, track the uh, the angle of the face relative to that path. So that's how you know if you're going to hit a draw or a fade, or in my case, a slice or a hook. Uh, club speed, uh, carry. So you get about a dozen data points uh, with TrackMan. Yeah, with all these things. And something I do for my players, but I also, you know, this part of the, this this work I do for myself, aggregating that information over time and seeing it trend over time and seeing how it correlates with on-course performances. It's not trivial to do statistically, and it's it's really impactful as well. Like, if you're getting better at something in the range, how is it translating to the golf course as well? This is why I haven't gotten into golf because I would do exactly that and drive myself crazy for better and worse, and, and probably my wife crazy for definitely for worse. But I've, I'm finally your favorite. How did I get here? Moment, you know, one of those moments in your career where you're just kind of able to take in for a sec. Like, this is a cool place. My job has gotten me to favorite. How did I get here moment? I've, I've been lucky to have a few of these, you know, I've been, you know, able to, to be in a lot of NBA arenas and a lot of meetings with, with some pretty impactful people around the NBA, but again, sticking with the theme and, and because it was probably the most recent, um, this past week I was at, um, TPC New Orleans, the Zurich classic, uh, walking practice round with a few players and can't say who the players are, but two, two guys who were, uh, just happen to be paired together and pretty, pretty high ranked players in the world and talking through how to hit a tee shot with them and their caddies and looking at our system on an iPad, you know, standing there and, and talking through that is, is it's a pretty pinch me moment. Um, you know, as someone who that's the sport that, you know, I really resonate with more than anything else. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool and it was last week. So, you know, a little recency bias, maybe a little fresh. It's good. I like it. All right. Corey Jez former team executive, analyst, entrepreneur, working across a variety of sports. We appreciate you joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for having me. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you to Corey Jez for talking with us on this episode. You can follow him on Twitter at JezData, J-E-Z Data. And check our show notes for links to his Tour IQ website, a couple profile pieces on his work, and more. I'm joined now by someone else with a varied resume, our producer, Sergio de la Esperia. Sergio, hello again. I know you enjoyed this and the wide variety of things we got to hit on here. I did. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I also enjoyed the little swerve you gave me at the beginning um, introducing the podcast. I am very excited every time we, we do this uh, recording of you know, the intro, a little behind the scenes. We do the intro and the and the end after our interview. So it's kind of a little production snafu that you can see. You're not snafu, a little production uh, behind Magic. the curtain. Magic. And and Paul, every time I'm very eager to see which athlete he chooses by the number of, of the episode. And this week, yes, it is 61. And you picked Roger Maris for obvious reasons in 61. But he wears the number, he wore the number nine. So I was like, oh, hmm. That's the first time you've referenced a number that wasn't the jersey number. So 
look at me with uh, doing doing the stats on the stats podcast. I, I give you a tease also. Uh, Mike Greenberg and Paul Hembikitis wrote this book called Got Your Number, which kind of goes through numbers zero to 100 in sports and assigns them like who owns that number. Uh, we're going to have Hembo on the pod in the coming weeks. So uh, there's a little bit of inspiration from him. This is also things we used to do in the ESPN research room. Uh, that makes perfect sense because uh, my, my birthday is this weekend and my aunt actually came over yesterday and gifted me that book. And now I realize I, I read the the introduction. I read the the intro where uh, <laughs> where Greenberg talks about how this the philosophy professor was like, are there really answers to questions? And he was like, and then I left the class because there's always an answer. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was really living that book. We can talk about that uh, at a different date. Um, this one is all about Corey Jez, which I really thoroughly enjoyed, Paul. I really did. Um, my my ADHD brain is is loving the bouncing back and forth between a bunch of different sports. Um, I am just now getting into golf. Um, and by getting into golf, I mean, I downloaded the latest EA PGA Tour video game because golf is expensive. <laughs> um, and so that is kind of my way of getting into the sport. And I think my favorite part of this whole episode was the dichotomy of the the sports that Corey had worked in, um, primarily in basketball and the NBA, and then with this golf project that he has in this, this company that he, that he runs, and how he was, you know, such an... Um, active golfer, uh, as he was saying with his background, I found it very interesting that the way that he used data in both or uses data in golf and the way he used it with basketball, they're very similar. And sometimes you, you feel like that's kind of at odds with each other because golf, like baseball is a, what I call a stagnant game where there's different situations, something happens and then the action stops or like football, the action stops. Here's the new situation. What do the numbers reflect on this new situation? Whereas basketball, like soccer, which he worked in with Austin, Austin FC, or even hockey, they're very free-flowing, right? They're, the games are, I call them more a little more artistic because you can't really ever predict exactly what's going to happen. Whereas in a, something like golf or baseball or football, you kind of have an idea of all the different options that you have. Whereas there's a bit more creativity in the moment with those other with uh, the, the movement sports like basketball and hockey and such. So for me, it was very intriguing and very interesting how someone can take the root of analytics, why we use it, and it can do it both in a way that a a more fluid game can understand it and apply it properly, and then also a more stagnant game can understand it and then apply it properly as well. I thought that that was that kind of gets to the gist of what we here on this podcast try to preach, right? Where that, that marriage between what's happening on the field or court or, or, or grass versus um, what the numbers on, on a piece of paper are saying and how we can use those numbers to, to further elevate not only our experience as fans watching it or as writers or in our position with our company at True Media, but also the people participating in that event and how they can improve as well. So very interesting to me, top to bottom. Yeah, it goes a lot to just being able to think about things. I don't know about the right way, but a certain way, you know, think critically, analyze information, like some of these universal skills that uh, can apply to almost any sport. And and also kind of to, you know, one of the things that I think he said that, that we know, but it's just continued to grow over the past few years is how important the back end of stuff is for these sports teams. You know, he talked about how he basically hire a, a data engineer first before he hired a data analyst if he's starting a, a team's analytics side. Uh, the importance of being able to 
both like warehouse the data, but also surface it in useful ways, make it more accessible to everybody. Like that's super important. And I think it's only getting more important because, you know, he talked about the thousands and thousands and thousands of shots that are available through uh, ShotLink for golf. Or, you know, Tegan uh, a week or two ago was talking about whatever it was, a terabyte of data or something from one game that of baseball, basketball, whichever one it is, there's just so much data. It's like being able to organize that. And yeah, so if somebody asks me like how to get into just generally sports analytics, I often tell them like, in some ways you can almost do whatever you want, but don't think that you have to be like a math major, a computer uh, or an analytics major. Like there's a lot, you know, you can do computer science, you can do a whole bunch of different things, but just there's this back end, and that's even more hidden, you know, as kind of, opaque as the sports analytics field can be to those on the outside. I feel like like another level beyond that is the the data engineers who are doing all the hard work that's, you know, same thing at our company where, you know, we have this little bit of a public face, but like if the engineers here are not building, processing data, building good websites that teams use, like this company isn't here. Uh, and it's the same thing on on the team side. So I don't know. It's just that they are, they are our max players. Yeah. It's not more important necessarily than the analytics side. It kind of is though, I guess, because if you don't have, you know, it's the foundation of a house, maybe if you don't have the foundation. It doesn't matter how pretty the house looks or how, how good the house is without that foundation. It's all going to just kind of fall apart and, and not do anything eventually. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of equated a bit to like mining for gold where there's so much, so many numbers, so much information, so much kind of being thrown at you um, in a figurative sense that kind of sifting through all that data and sifting through all those numbers must feel like, you know, the gold rush in the 1840s and 50s. You know what I mean? It's like, well, okay, I have to go through all of this, but when I do get that one piece that matters, it's going to be worth it. And that kind of information is like gold right now to sports teams and even, you know, our media partners as well. It's a way for them to boost their coverage. We're at a we're at the dawn of a very important, I believe, five to 10 year stretch, not just in sports data, but in sports, because I think everyone, even from the most hesitant person um, and your more, uh, you know, quote unquote, traditional coach or player or even sports writer or fan, even they have to admit that, oh, OK, there's I can see some of the benefit here. And if we can grab those people who really from the very beginning were kind of either against it or just not willing to embrace it, which I think we're starting to see now. Um, yeah, that's something that I think is is going to be very valuable in the sports world as a whole. And I'm very eager to see how something that personally I love so much, like sports, I mean, any sport I love, I'm very interested to see how it shapes it and where it goes in the future so that eventually, you know, when I have kids, how are they going to experience the game versus how I did? You know, the, the days of the days of um, me watching Dwayne Wade in 06 literally go to the free throw line 35 times in a in a and then literally carry the heat to an NBA Finals title. I don't know if those days are there anymore after what Steph Curry did just 10 years later. You know what I mean? Right. Something like yep. that with game analytics. Changes. Yeah, and and that kind of reminds me of a couple other things that Corey touched on. Um, one is as a TV analyst, this is from my TV background too. use numbers that they're using. People ask, you know, why are you putting war on a baseball broadcast? Why are you, why is OPS a thing now instead of bad and average and stuff like that, which are reasonable questions for someone who's, you know, watched the game for a long time. That's what they've seen. And one of the best answers I think is, 
exactly that. This is what managers are using to make decisions. This is what front office people are using to make choices on players they're going to sign. Like we're trying to, in the media world, in some ways, you're trying to reflect and use information that is being actually used. We're not just making this up for the sake of doing that. You're trying to reflect actual usage and what matters and how choices and decisions are made and things like that. I I also think there's a humanistic aspect to it, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, Paul, but I think if we would have had war and OPS and um, soccer expected goals or these analytics that have kind of become more common, um, um, at least amongst my generation, I'm I'm turning 27 this week kind of thing, like younger, I could say, the, the children, right? The children. If they would have published those in the 1950s when in the box score, when, you know, Joe Schmo was picking up the newspaper, uh, before having breakfast before going over and checking the Yankee score from the night before, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be in this situation. It's all about it's that humanistic oh, behavior. Habit, of, for sure. We're comfortable of habit. Exactly. So once we kind of break that, then I think we can be in a bit more of a better place to, you know, listen to the analytics and stuff like that, which is a, a great life lesson, not just in yeah, analytics, no, but it's working exactly, out in analytics. That's the approach we would take at ESPN, like building graphics. And it's, uh, let's put QBR on a graphic instead of passer rating. The ref- graphic doesn't have to be about QBR, you know, maybe really highlighting the completion percentage or something in the game. But if that's like the second or third thing on the graphic and you just kind of keep doing that. And then like by the end of the season, everyone's kind of comfortable with it. And the next season, they're like, oh, why isn't QBR on the graphic? You know, things like that, which sound kind of silly. But, and Corey talked about this too. Like on TV, you say the same thing in not every game, not literally the same uh, stat or whatever, but you use the same kind of stats in game to game or every other game or whatever it is. And people just get comfortable with it. And it's the only, I mean, it goes that way for anything in life, but it's in TV and, and sports, especially. It's a lot of it's just exposure uh, to everything. The, the one other thing I want to hit real quick is he talked about, um, just quantifying sports conversations. And a lot of it is just, what do you want to know? You know, you don't even have to use a number sometimes, but I do this when I talk to soccer analysts, like, what are you watching in this game? I'm not asking them for what stats do you want me to give you, but it's just, what are you watching and let them talk soccer. And that's my job as a statistician, as an analyst is to figure out, okay, well, they're keeping an eye on set pieces. Well, let's see, what are they doing? you know, where's the ball going? How many of them are they completing? What shots are they getting off of it? You know, whatever it is, you know, let the story tell itself from the game, but have the numbers to back it up. And so, yeah, it's, it's, what do you want to know? We don't, we don't need a number. We just know, you know, what are you keeping an eye on? What's important to you in this game? It's how I must imagine my girlfriend feels when we watch a movie together. And I turn to her after a scene that she thinks is completely inconsequential. And I was like, did you see that acting choice? She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, you know what? Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> it's about yeah. how you watch things, not yeah. if you're watching them. You know, so. I'm the same way with movies. I come at them from more of a technical side where mm-hmm. like, I had kind of a technical media training. So I'm like, whoa, did you see that cut? And my mm-hmm. wife just stares at me. <laughs> yeah. I'm a dork and I totally yeah. embrace it and accept it's it. It's who we are, Paul. It's just, we all have our different quirks. It's who we are. Let's, we got to embrace it. For yep, better. for sure. All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thank you one more time to Corey Jez for joining us on the show. If you want more conversations about really anything that we talked about, we've had people on the pod before, uh, Justin Ray and golf analytics and TV soccer guests like Sarah Rudd used to work at Arsenal NBA employees like Spencer Anderson at the Pacers, uh, even Keith Goldner, who's VP of data science at FanDuel. So you can you know, find more on just about any of those topics we touched on in our archives. Uh, while you're there, subscribe, rate, review the show, please. That helps us continue to grow. And you can follow us on Twitter, follow true media on Twitter at true media sports, T R U media sports. 
Even email the show if you have ideas or feedback, expected value at truemedianetworks.com. On behalf of producer Sergio De La Esperia and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.